Our scripture reading for today is from John, or Matthew 6, 6 through 15. Matthew 6, 6 through 15. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Hallelujah. Hey, well, good morning and welcome to Trinity. My name is Jonathan, get to serve as a pastor of our church. Uh, if you are new to Christianity, we are glad that you are here. If you are exploring Christianity, uh, we are glad that you are here. I have met many people who have been in the church a long time and never felt welcomed to have a conversation about things that really mattered. And so um, we are just thrilled that you're here. We believe that these are the questions that you ought to be answering if you're looking for purpose, if you're looking for meaning. The centerpiece of Christianity is Jesus. It's about a relationship with him. And each week, from our liturgy to our music to our teaching and preaching, even though, as I said last week, we are teaching through a series that we have entitled The Lord's Prayer, Holy Resistance, we are always taking you to the centerpiece of the book, the centerpiece of the story, which is relational. It's about a person. I want to know him. We are entering into a master class on prayer. Jesus himself is the teacher. His whole life revolved around praying, seeking the Father. If you want to know where Jesus was when he was missing, you know where he was often found? On his own praying. He got up early. He stayed up late. And we're not trying to be like Jesus simply to just do it. But we want the character of Christ to shape us and to form us. And so we're looking for these six-ish weeks, depending on how we break this down at Holy Resistance and the Lord's Prayer. But let me say this as I make a few statements and get us started. The driving purpose of prayer is to make God central again. That's what we're doing when we pray. You woke up this morning and something's vying for your affection, something's vying for your attention. It wants to be primary. Maybe it's that incredible cup of coffee at Mostra that you enjoyed. Maybe that's indigestion that you have right now because you ate breakfast quickly on the way out. Man, something's vying for your attention, not just your physical, but your emotional and your spiritual attention. The Bible calls this the heart. The reason we pray is to make God central again. Jesus teaches us that the central point of praying is to reorient our hearts around the centerpiece that's called God and to come into the presence of a creator who's almighty, he's in heaven, but he invites us to know him as father. 
and to use that time and experience as the primary way to recenter our lives on him. Sometimes you wonder why you're at church. Maybe you got invited by a friend, you've been resisting, you showed up. What are those Christians going to do at their church? Our primary goal today is to recenter your life on Jesus. That's it. That's why I do what I do. I believe that you were created for that purpose. I believe that's the point of Christianity. It's to recenter the mind, body, will, strength on Jesus. And so we're using this to do that. So we're only going to be able to relate to this God as Father. That's the access point of prayer. You don't have to grovel. You don't have to force your way into relationship. Jesus, as the elder brother, has brought us into a family. That's the part one of this Lord's Prayer. We address him as Father. But you're only going to hallow his name if you see how close he's come in the person of Jesus Christ. Hallow is the first part. It's just a hallelujah. Like hallelujah, Jesus, you're the centerpiece of my life. There are things pulling me in this direction and that direction. But because I've seen who you are, I met with you in the quiet place, what Jesus calls the secret place. I asked you last week, do you have a secret place where you meet with the Father because you want to? Not because you have to, because he shows up and he changes your life. He reorients your heart. We address him as Father. We hallow his name. But then the second and the third petition we're going to look at today are, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So I've got two points today, all right? Two points. Number one, the kingdom of God. And number two, the will of God. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Pretty straightforward. We're going to look at the kingdom of God and the will of God, all right? So under part one, the kingdom of God. Anybody in the room like to travel? Any travelers? All of you are lying, all right? Most of you like to travel. We love to get away. Suppose someone offered the following to you as a description of life within a country or a kingdom that you'd yet to visit. All right, here's the description. In our country, blessed are those who are aching and searching for answers. Blessed are those who are unemployed who are going through severe family dysfunction. Blessed are those who are often ignored and alone at the company lunch tables. Blessed are the ones with little money and no investments. Blessed are the pimps and the prostitutes, the greedy Wall Street tycoons, and the dishonest car salesmen. Blessed are those who struggle in class, who will never make the honor roll, who will never see a minute of play on a varsity team. Blessed are the less than attractive, the out of shape, the unkempt. Blessed are the homeless, the grimy, the mentally disturbed. Blessed are those whose marriages are on the rocks, whose kids have walked away from faith. Blessed are those who find it difficult to smile because of the season of life that feels so difficult and trying. Man, if this were offered as a description of an economy, of a life, of an atmosphere within a place that you'd never visited, you'd never been to, we'll call it a faraway land or we'll just call it a kingdom, you're going to have a lot of questions. You're probably going to have a lot of pushback. At the start of what's called the Sermon on the Mount, listen to what Jesus describes about those who will enjoy life in what he calls a kingdom, kingdom of God, Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. 
Verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted, going through very difficult things for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, if the kingdom of God seems strange and unexpected and out of place, there's a theologian by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He would have encouraged us to link the oddity of the kingdom of God with the strangeness, the uniqueness of the king himself. Like most of you in the room, did you know that 1.9 billion people tuned in for the royal wedding between Harry and Meghan? 1.9 billion. Like a third of us were doing the same thing at the same time. No shame. I watched it. All right. I was intrigued. Most of us are intrigued by royalty. We have a unique, if not complicated, relationship with the concept of a monarchy. And so did the ancient Hebrews. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, we learn that, people re- that the people rejected a prophet by the name of Samuel. He was a prophet. His sons were supposed to follow him as rulers or as judges. They reject Samuel, they, and they demand a king. They said literally, quote, appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Samuel, at first, he's offended. He says, God, they don't want me. They don't want my sons. God reassures them. I think we have this quote. It's not about you, Samuel. They are not rejecting you as king. They have rejected me as king. God was the first king of Israel. But they say, you know what? We're tired of that. Prophets, their sons, judges not working. Look at those nations. We'd like a king like those nations have. And of course, while there was some measure of peace, a guy named Saul was Israel's first king. That decision to appoint him led to a Jewish history littered with kings and kingdoms with various degrees of righteousness, with the overwhelming pattern being this, abuses of power, God-forgetfulness, wayward hearts, idolatry, servitude, and exile. That's what came from this decision. We want a king like all the nations. They were warned they're going to take and take and take and take they did. Very complex history with Israel and Judah's kings. If you go back to the end of the book of Judges, this kind of goes through Samuel and kings as well. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes with various degrees of success and failure. Now, of course, you go through those books, you're going to see that there were seasons and periods of political freedom and autonomy in Israel's history. But the storyline reveals, pay attention to this, that the hearts of the people, under these kings, were always still enslaved. Various political successes. But what about my life? What about my soul? What about my heart? Yeah, maybe we're flourishing momentarily. Our economy's going great. But I'm looking for something that can heal the internal issues that I've got. Could it be that one of the reasons that America has such a political idolatry right now is because we are looking for somebody who can take care of the external threats, be our king, be our president, but also take care of the mess inside of my life? Nobody's been able to fix this thing. We have so much compound pressure on human institutions. Are we pro-human institutions? Of course we are. Do we want flourishing policy? Yes, but have we banked too much in people? And what they can provide, I would say yes. 
external threats, internal threats. No king could, could rise to the occasion. And so the Bible tells us God would show up. God would show up. In Mark 1.15, we're told that Jesus came into the region of Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, quote, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. But how could this backwater preacher from Nazareth say that the kingdom of God was at hand? Well, it's because he understood that where the king is, there's his kingdom. They didn't expect this guy named Jesus to be a king, but he comes and announces the kingdom of God is at hand. In Luke 17, 21, Jesus is having a conversation with the Pharisees. They've got a question about the arrival of God's kingdom. And here's what Jesus says. Behold, the kingdom is in the midst of you. They started to hate him just like that. Who do you think you are? That you would say that Israel's great hope has now arrived because you have come into the room. Jesus even goes so far as to say that proclaiming the arrival of the kingdom of God was why he came. Some of you have questions about Jesus. What's the point of Jesus? Was he real? Was he a historical figure? What was his purpose and point in life and in death and in resurrection? You don't have to wonder. Jesus tells us in Luke 4, 43, he says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. Man, I love a good purpose statement. Your life needs a purpose statement. Jesus understood his purpose. Don't keep me here for too long. I have been sent to proclaim a kingdom because the king is on the scene. A simple definition of the kingdom of God. It's complex, but it's also very simple. Simple definition is to think of the kingdom of God as his redemptive reign and rule. Write that down. Now, what's God doing in the world? He's redeeming. Is Jesus the king? Absolutely. And because he's the king, he brings a redemptive reign and rule. Guess what? It impacts your mind. It impacts your heart. It impacts your body. This is not just some sort of spiritualized kingdom up in the clouds. This is real citizenship. Jesus is really at the center. He's a Lord. He conflicts with Caesar. I have to make choices around this, and I'm skipping ahead. But this is what we're talking about. Jeremy Treat, he's a pastor in L.A. at a wonderful church in the Hollywood area. He writes, after Adam and Eve's rebellion, God's reign is revealed as redemptive. He's the king who is reclaiming his creation. His kingdom is not the culmination of human potential and effort but the intervention of his royal grace into a sinful and broken world. And I think this is why the kingdom of God is so strange. That the king of grace has arrived. What does that mean? Like the king of grace. The king of grace is on the scene. Well, it means that his kingdom isn't about coercion. It's not about will to power. And it's not about fear like most other kingdoms. It's about the release of incredible redemptive power in our world through the renewed presence of God that is brought to us with this gift called the Holy Spirit that changes the hearts, lives, and families of people who follow Jesus as king. He goes, I'm on the scene and I'm bringing something to you. Redemptive power. Gracious power. 
How do I become a part of this kingdom? Let's ask that question. Sounds unique. Maybe you've got a lot of questions. You should. How do I become a part of Jesus' kingdom? What does it mean to relate to him as king? There's only one way, and it's through repentance and new birth. How do I become part of the Jesus thing? Like, how do I become part of what Jesus is doing in the world? There was a very well-educated religious man by the name of Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He's got the same questions. He comes to Jesus at night. He's curious about the kingdom. He's curious about eternal life. He's curious about who Jesus is and what he's saying, how he's teaching and preaching. He's probably a little bit embarrassed, maybe like you. Jesus welcomes this man at night under the cover of shade, opens up an incredible conversation about the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is going, man, like, what do I got to do to be a part of this thing that you're bringing to fruition? And Jesus goes, nothing. You got to die to yourself. A new birth has to take place in your life and in your heart. Repentance is part of this. Not coercion, not strength, but humility and hunger rather than entitlement and being proud. The arrival of the kingdom also means that when you encounter Jesus, that you've got to make some choices, right? It's going to to impact your day. It's going to impact your relationships. When I encounter Jesus, I have to make a decision for or against him. The Bible calls that part of the process repentance. Jesus has a conversation with a young entrepreneur. He's made a lot of money. He's called the rich young ruler. Man, this guy has got clout. He's got power. He's got influence. He's got people. He comes to Jesus and he wants to find out about eternity, what he has to do to inherit eternal life. But in that conversation, Jesus uncovers that there's something orienting his life and it's not the God that he proclaims to profess. What he does is he asks the man to sell everything he has, not so that he can earn his way into heaven, but so Jesus could expose that orienting factor in his life. The man loved money. Very short description at the end of that conversation. He walked away sad. Decision has to be made. Man, am I with this Jesus and his kingdom or am I building my own kingdom? Am I establishing an identity through what I do, through how I look, through how I perform, or am I receiving an identity from the king of grace? Which is it going to be? What does redemptive power look like? What's it look like? I don't have to make up stories. It looks like the gospels of Jesus Christ walking on our planet. The way in which he loved, the way in which he cared, that he touched the leper, that he laid down his life for somebody else. This is redemptive power. And when Jesus released himself through the Holy Spirit into our planet, you go, I'll take some of that. I would like some of that kingdom in my life. I'm not just praying for some kingdom to come. Like I'm just sitting around. A lot of Christians think that we're non-participatory. Like every now and then, maybe every three weeks at Trinity, and every now and then if I remember at home, if I'm a follower of Jesus, maybe the words of the Lord's Prayer and a kingdom-mindedness will come as I engage with this God. No, we are participants now. The Holy Spirit has been released to us now. 
We get to be redemptive agents of good now. But let's, before I move to point two, let's ask this question. If Jesus is king, why are we praying for his kingdom to come? Now, why isn't it already here? Why is there still so much chaos, injustice, war, pain, and disease? It's because of what theologians call the already and the not yet. Quick show of hands if you've ever heard of this phrase. The already, but the not yet. All right, this is great. Jesus is already king, but he is not yet fully inaugurated and on the throne. Let me explain that. Already king, the already, but not yet. Some have compared this to what took place on D-Day in World War II versus V-E Day, victory in Europe that took place 11 months later. D-Day was, of course, the operation where Allied forces landed and gained a foothold in France in 1944, but it wasn't until 11 months later, May 8th, 1945, that the Nazi Germans, the German forces, offered its unconditional surrender to the Allied forces. D-Day, historians say, is the day, it's the event, it's the week, it's the period where we got the foothold in Europe and things began to change, that the war was effectively won there. But it took 11 months later for the surrender to fully take place and for the war to end. In other words, Good Friday and Easter is where the victory was really won. It's about Jesus. He is the king. He has stepped on the head of the serpent. We are now waiting for VE Day, which is his return. And so we pray for it. But, but I live, okay? I live in light of the surety and the confidence that he is coming back again. And he is the thing at the centerpiece of my life. He is what directs every thought and every decision. Sure, we get off track, but I'm living in light of the fact that Jesus was resurrected once, the battle has been won, and he is coming again. Amen? Amen. See, we live in light of eternity. What he has effected and enacted and promised, redemptive grace is coming your way. Cry out for it. It's not fully here yet. But Jesus has put in all the pieces, all the steps for the kingdom and the king to reign again. It's all about Easter. We have a resurrected Lord. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is now. But we pray for more of it. Before I move on, are you kingdom people? That's like an old school thing. My dad used to go, we're kingdom people. He didn't mean we didn't invest in the kingdoms, the companies, the relationships on this planet. But he said, there is a first citizenship. I am first a citizen of heaven. I am second a citizen of this planet. And it makes me a better citizen now because I know what's coming. Thy kingdom come, Jesus. Bring it here. Start with us. Part two, the will of God. The kingdom of God and the will of God. So your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Prayer is not about getting what we want from God and then moving on. Prayer is about bending our will Toward what God wants. Don't you often think that prayer is really bending God's will towards yours? I do. God, do what I want. God, I got plans. Like I'm going places. I need you to bless what I'm doing. 
Maybe he will, maybe he won't. But what I'm saying here is that's actually not the point of prayer, to bend God's will towards yours. This third petition shows us that the point of prayer is to bend our will toward his. As C.S. Lewis says in the stage play and film Shadowlands, he says, I pray because I can't help myself. I pray because I'm helpless. I pray because the need flows out of me all the time, waking and sleeping. It doesn't change God. It changes me. Prayer like this is about making the countercultural move, you ready? Away from self at the center and reorienting our dreams, desires, everyday decisions around the reality of a king named Jesus. There's a great book called Prayer Revolution. And the author's name is John Smed. And he offers a secular, inward version of the Lord's Prayer where the self dominates. Glance at this for a moment. It may be difficult to see, but I'll walk you through a part of it. So often our prayers are centered on me. You see it at the top. Our Father in heaven. This is how Jesus teaches us to pray. But rather to pray like that, it's so natural to say, I'm going to pray all about me. I'm going to orient my will in the world. I'm going to focus on myself. Instead of holy is your name, what we're really saying is, God, make a name for me. Make a name for me. Your kingdom come. Well, maybe, but bless my plans. Build my kingdom. Your will be done. Well, just relieve my struggles. Give us daily bread. Well, I'm going to worry for my present urgencies. Forgive us as we forgive. I got a lot of quarrels and I'm avoiding all of the conflict. Lead us and deliver us. I've simply been defeated by all of the challenges. We can send you this if you can't see it at the back. But there's a way of praying where self is consistently at the center. And this is changing all of that. Instead of our Father in heaven, I mean, instead of focusing on myself, it's Father in heaven, it's holy is your name, it's your kingdom come, and it's your will be done. Let me just say this. On my best day, I'm able to really believe it. The world doesn't need more of my preferences and my will. The world needs more of God's preferences and God's will. And we must be able to pray, thy will be done, which is a profound act of holy resistance against the kingdom of self. I trust you, Lord. Thy will be done. You know why we have to be able to pray that? And Jesus instructs us to pray that in a certain order is because there will always be days and seasons where it feels like God is not giving you your daily bread. If it hasn't already happened, it will. You are going to sense that God is not provisionary, that he is not providing, that he's not showing up, that he's not answering your request, that he's an absentee father, that you're all alone. It's going to happen. And this is why the first part, petition one, two, and three, reorients our attention this way, in those seasons where it feels like there is no daily bread. God, you're not giving me what I need. I'm reminded that I have a father who sees me. He loves me. He pursues me. And actually, like every great father has gotten down on our level in the person of Jesus Christ. That's where we start. Profound act of holy resistance to not pray the inward self prayer. But you got more resources than that. Importantly, 
This petition finds itself on the lips of Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane. On the eve of his crucifixion, Jesus was praying. He's in the garden. He's alone. He's depleted. He's filled with sorrow and he cries out, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, how does he finish it? Not my will, but your will. Very human Jesus at this moment. Human and divinity being mixed perfectly. Jesus says, Father, if there's any other way, show me, I'll take it. Very honest. He's not faking the words so we can read them later. He is looking for another way to fix the world and to heal your heart. He goes, I need it. I want it. It's overwhelming, but I trust you. Father, if there is no other way to fix all of this that we have created and we have agreed from the beginning to remake, if there is no other way, I'll take your way, but I want another way, but not my will, but your will. And you know that in the story, Jesus begins to wrestle at an even deeper level. He remains in prayer and his sweat becomes like drops of blood because the full realization swept over him that there was no other way. There's no other way to fix you and to fix all of this, that he had to lay down his life to absorb the full wrath of God's sin against yours and against mine. He understood it. And yet he continues to pray, not my will, but your will. Let me deepen this for you. Recently, our family was watching a documentary on the events of 9-11. And I tuned into a scene. I walked past the TV where they were describing the heroism of the first responders, those men and women who ran into the Twin Towers to rescue people while people were trying to get out. They're the only ones running in and up. You know these stories. An incredible bravery and unmatched heroism. They risked their life to go back after other people, to go back into that building. But they didn't know that building was going to crash on them. We know, watching later, they did not know for sure that that building was going to crash on them. But Jesus did. He knew what was coming. And he looked at it full-eyed and full-hearted, and he said, I don't want it. But we want them. And so Jesus ran into that burning building because there was no way for you to be saved and for me to be saved. But like Jesus had a funeral so that you and I could live with him in his kingdom forever. He understood the full weight of that building God's wrath crashing upon his body and his soul. And he went forward. And the strangeness of this king, right? Who's a king like that? Who goes running into the burning building? Who absorbs the cross? Who accepts the will? Who dies a death for you and for me? See, Jesus also prayed, thy will be done. God never asks anything of you that he hasn't already asked of himself. 
And to watch Jesus do that, live like that, pray like that, it bends the human will, but it doesn't break the human will. It heats up the human heart where the will comes from so that your will can be different. When I see the gospel and I see Jesus run into the building for me in the thing of the cross, the event of the cross, I know that I can trust him. Thy will be done in my life. You're good. You are gracious. There's no king like you. To the Christians in the room, Christians are people who have been led to their own Gethsemane moment, crucifying our selfishness in order to give space for the rule and the reign of God to flow through us in love. Isn't that what it means to be a Christian? So many competing definitions of what it means to be a Christian. God's redemptive love has gotten a hold of my life and I wanna be an agent for it to flow out to others. Ready? Jesus, because you willingly step forward as a sacrifice for my sin, I can trust you with my money. Not my will, but yours. Jesus, I can trust you with unmet expectations or my difficult marriage or family disappointments or what I do or don't do with my body. Thy will be done. Young people, I know you're over here. You ready for this? God isn't out to crush your will and take all of the joy out of your life. He is not after being a killjoy. He is out to renew your heart and fill you with more of himself. Obedience is not a drag. It's what you were made for. And this is not about legalism. This is about love. Your love was secured at the cross. Look, if you pray more, awesome. God won't love you anymore. If you submit your will to his will, he's not gonna love you anymore. That has been done at what? D-Day, cross and resurrection. You are fully loved. This is now about a response to the love of God. I want your kingdom to come. I want your will to be done in my life in the same way that it is in heaven. It doesn't earn you a thing, but it's a response to profound love. It's what you were made for. And we will never captivate an unbelieving world with the love of God if there is no redemptive difference between followers of Jesus and the lost world. As I close, remember, Jesus won through an unexpected route, didn't he? A non-traditional scheme, suffering, service, not coercive power. Jesus' disciples changed the fabric of the Roman Empire, human history, through praying and embodying the Lord's Prayer, by loving people unto life, by seeking to advance and extend the kingdom of love, this redemptive grace, the strangeness of Jesus in these daily, hidden, thousands of little decisions to advance the kingdom, to love other people, and to glorify God. Thy kingdom come. Start with me. Thy will be done. It's hard, man. It is like the last bastion. Like it's the thing that you have to give away for you to finally find freedom. You don't just need my time. You don't just need some money. You gotta have my heart and my will. You lay down your life to prove that you're trustworthy. This isn't just about praying, is it? This is about a life shaped around Jesus. 
As we come to the table, I'm going to offer a prayer. And I think we have this on the screen. I'm going to invite you to just read eyes open with me for the first part of this prayer. This prayer is written by John Wesley, and it's known as the Wesleyan Covenant Prayer. It's about the heart, and it's about the will. So just read along silently as I read it over you, and then I'll pray, and then we'll go to the table. I am no longer my own, O Lord, but thine. Put me to what thou wilt. Rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for thee or laid aside for thee, exalted for thee or brought low for thee. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thou art mine and I am thine. So be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Jesus, people have come before us who have said that their response to the kingdom breaking in was going to be they wanted to give you everything. And they had kingdoms, they had influence, they had money. They had families, they had children. They had a future. And you did not tear it up and destroy it when they handed it to you. You breathed redemptive love and life into it and it changed everything. Because we in this room, we have things. And we got power. We've got possibilities. We've got relationships. We've got hopes and dreams. We've got educations. Holy Spirit, what do you want us to do with them? We could gain the whole world and at the end forfeit everything because Jesus would never have been the king of our life. But what an unexpected, strange king that you are. Journey with the rejected, welcomes the weary, highest of all creation. He lives among the least. This is who you are. This is the strangeness of the kingdom of God, redemptive power breaking in when we say, I need you. When we come empty-handed, when we come humble, so meet with us, we pray. Change us, we pray. Let your kingdom come more here, even as we sat and listened to your word. Let us release more of our will to you as we eat the sacrament with one another, brothers and sisters, all in a journey of struggle. Struggle to let you be king. Jesus, meet with us, we pray. In your redeeming name.